You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, um, if you were listening last week, you'll know that I spent last week's show really talking mostly about Kabbalah, and as an offshoot of that, uh, Hasidism, excuse me, and I thought I wanted to uh, stay on the same kind of stream today. Uh, of course, I don't know how much interest this will have of, to you. Uh, perhaps you can call in and, and let me know if it has no interest at all. But um, basically, the line that I want to go down to today, go down today is that Judaism stayed pretty much the same from the post-Temple times, say, 4th century AD, until the Enlightenment, until the 18th century. And boy, has it changed since then. And there were two streams to the way it changed. Uh, you can see, consider that there was a fork in the road, and it went either kind of to the right and became very, uh, very devout and very mystical, and that's reflected in Hasidism. And I'll talk a little bit about that if I have time at the end of the show. But the other stream was the stream which was affected by what is commonly called the Enlightenment, which is usually dated to around uh, 1720. And uh, it's called the Enlightenment because I think there's an old line that the victors um, write the history. And so it's called the Enlightenment because basically this culture the civilization, the, the, the way men thought about the world went from being revelation-based, meaning the revealed truth revealed by God in Judaism and in Christianity, to being, quote, scientific, close quote. That is, nothing exists that you can't measure in a test tube, essentially. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that. That was obviously a little bit of a coarse uh, characterization. Um, but anyway, with that enlightenment, with that uh, victory of rationalism, it really had a terrible effect on all religion and, of course, on Christianity. It, it ushered in the erosion of, among other things, actually, of the authority of the Catholic Church and of belief in dogma and so forth. And it had a similar effect on Judaism. And... Uh, you know, the vast majority of the Jewish people that you're going to run into today are following a Judaism which very, very heavily was influenced by the Enlightenment, which I would argue could be called the Endarkenment, because it actually wasn't a increase of the light of truth in men's minds, but quite the opposite. It was a it was a veiling of revealed truth in men's minds and a substitution of the only truth being that which can be materialistically verified, which, of course, takes God out of the equation. It takes a lot out of the equation. So let me just begin 
by reading a standard description of the Enlightenment. Historians traditionally date the Enlightenment from 1715 on, um, and most ended with the beginning of the 19th century. Philosophers and scientists of the period widely circulated their ideas through meetings at scientific academies, Masonic lodges, literary salons, coffee houses, and in printed books, journals, and pamphlets. By the way, I'm reading a standard description actually from Wikipedia, so this isn't from some anti-Masonic kook. It's really true that the Enlightenment really was spread to a large extent through Masonic lodges, because that was, of course, the primary purpose of Masonry was to undermine the authority of the Catholic Church and the belief in the revealed truth of God. Anyway, back to the short description. Um, the ideas in the Enlightenment undermined the authority of the monarchy and the church and paved the way for the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, just a little side point here. Think of the French Revolution, which was, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1770s, was the overthrow of the king of France, the overthrow of the authority of the church in France, because up until that point, the kings in Europe weren't kings unless they were crowned by the Pope. It was actually the Pope's um, establishing them as the monarch that gave them their authority because it was the Holy Roman Empire. The church was sovereign over everything. The French Revolution was really the beginning of the end for the Holy Roman Empire in that sense. And the French Revolution came directly out of the French Enlightenment and came directly out of those Masonic lodges and was intensely, intensely, intensely anti-church in its orientation. Again, as I said, the, the victors write the histories. So if you go to high school now in the United States, if they even teach it at all, they probably teach what's the standard phrase for the French Revolution, liberty, fraternity, equality, that it was a great victory of the natural rights of man over the oppressive church or something. But that was really a, a, a fiction. It was a fiction like the communist revolution in, in China or in, in Russia was, you know, a great benefit to the people. That was pure pop propaganda. The French Revolution was more about destroying the church than anything else. And the revolutionaries, when they took over the government, for instance, changed the week to 10 days. They changed the calendar so that a week had 10 days, so that no one could observe the Sabbath, no one could observe Sunday. You couldn't know when Sunday was, because there were 10 days in a week. They um, destroyed churches, and they, the, when they didn't destroy churches, I believe it was Notre Dame in Paris, they, um, they built uh, kind of a square boxes around the steeples, so that it wouldn't look like a church. And they intentionally defiled the church, um, I want to be very polite and discreet here, but uh, I, I believe, again, it was Notre Dame in Paris, which was kind of the mother church of France, where they used the services of a prostitute on the altar in order to deconsecrate and defile the church. So this was not a victory of reason and equality and fraternity and brotherly love. This was a victory of basically the satanic forces out to destroy the church. That's why I think it's so ridiculous it's called the Enlightenment. But anyway, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution uh, were really kind of um, bookends. If, in other words, the Enlightenment was the beginning of the process, 
and the French Revolution was the culmination in France of that process. Anyway, uh, back to this Wikipedia description. You'll see where I'm going with this. Um, the Enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on the sovereignty of reason and the evidence of the senses as the primary sources of knowledge. And advanced ideals such as liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government, and separation of church and state. So you can see here the um, thrust of it, uh, the thrust of the Enlightenment really being to destroy God's role in society. Um, and as a matter of fact, to destroy God's role in the thinking of man, right? Because I'll just repeat that sentence. It's horrifying. And this is, this is written not... You know, not from the point of view of scandal-mongering. This is written from the point of view of people who su support the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on the sovereignty of reason and the evidence of the senses as the primary sources of knowledge. Now, we actually know that divine revelation is a pretty primary source of knowledge. And you're not going to confirm divine revelation with the evidence of the senses wholesale. You can in various circumstances, and we have countless, countless confirmations of the truths of the Catholic faith provided by the evidence of the senses. Just think of the Shroud of Turin, right? The burial cloth of Jesus, which has the miraculously imprinted image of Jesus on it. And even today in 2020, all of the technology that we have today could not counterfeit the Shroud of Turin. Uh, similarly, we have the Tilma of Guadalupe, we have the medical miracles at Lourdes, the healings at Lourdes, and so forth. There's plenty of, of verifiable evidence of the senses that confirm the truths of the Catholic Church, but our source of truth is not confined to the evidence of the senses. We have an even better source, which is divine revelation. And this, by the way, is true of Jews also. Uh, because the Old Testament is divine revelation. The things that the rabbis added after the death of Jesus, that's not divine revelation. It may or may not be somewhat inspired, but it's certainly not divine revelation since it denies Jesus. However, the Old Testament itself, that is, the religion of Judaism as given by God and followed by the Jews up until the crucifixion, that's divine revelation, and that's still a large part of uh, Judaism. Anyway, continuing with his description of the Enlightenment. In France, the central doctrines of the Enlightenment philosophers were individual liberty and religious tolerance in opposition to an absolute monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the Catholic Church. Okay, My truth, your truth. There can't be any fixed dogmas. And religious tolerance... Oh boy, I think it was... Um, Pope Leo X, I, I shouldn't guess, one of the late 19th century popes said that error has no rights as opposed to truth. The Enlightenment position is that essentially all opinions of anybody have equal rights because there is no uh, objective, establishable truth. They're calling it religious tolerance. But religious tolerance is actually... <laughs> religious tolerance is good in the sense that people should be free to follow their religious inclinations and their religions, but that doesn't mean that uh, truth has no unique 
role to play in, um, in society. Anyway, in opposition to an absolute monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the Catholic Church, the Enlightenment was marked by an emphasis on the scientific method and reductionism, along with increased questioning of religious orthodoxy. So you can see how this, the Enlightenment basically just aimed the canons. That's the wrong kind of canon. That's C-A-N-N-O-N-S, you know. Aimed the howitzers, aimed the flamethrowers at what was uh, accepted as, as the truth for the preceding 1500 years in Europe, which is essentially the revealed truth of Christianity for most of society and for a very, very small sliver of society, the revealed truth of Judaism, which actually didn't differ much from the revealed truth of Christianity with the exception <laughs> of who was Jesus, which was a pretty big exception. But the uh, moral teachings, the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt and shalt nots and so forth were not wildly different between um, within the Judeo-Christian tradition. So anyway, so there we have, I'm just setting the stage. So I'm, that's, you know, we, we had Europe in a fairly stable state, not politically, but in terms of kind of philosophy, values of life, um, overarching structure of society, fairly stable for many centuries, and Judaism, fairly stable for many centuries. Along comes the Enlightenment. Now, I'm, I made an association a few minutes ago between the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. Now, there is another aspect of that that is of tremendous importance in understanding what happened to Judaism after the Enlightenment, and that is the emancipation of the Jews. Um, the Jews did not have any civil rights pretty much anywhere in Europe for uh, 1,800 years, 1,600 years. In other words, throughout, throughout Europe, from the 9th century or so, 10th century, the fall of the uh, Moors, actually, the Islamic conquest of, of the Iberian Peninsula, from when that was pushed back, and whatever that was about the 10th century, until the French Revolution, the Jews had no civil rights anywhere in Europe. They weren't citizens in any country. They could be expelled at will. There were tremendous restrictions on their activities, uh, where they could live, um, what, uh, what professions they could follow, whom they could associate with, and so forth. And this was pretty much um, everywhere in Europe. It was, in fact, everywhere in Europe, with a, a small exception in Poland. I, I won't go there now, but that's actually why Hasidism comes from that part of the world. Um, and many of these restrictions, well, the restrictions as laws were obviously imposed by the um, legal political authority of the country. But, of course, that legal political authority of the country was always Catholic kings. And they followed uh, direction from the Catholic Church. And the direction from the Catholic Church was actually not for the emancipation of the Jews. It was not for the Jews to have full civil rights. Um, I will read, and I'm not, I'm not church bashing here. I'm just presenting a little bit of history. Maybe I won't read it because it sounds like church bashing. But anyway, um, there was an um, encyclical in uh, 1555 coming from Pope Paul the fourth called cum nemus absurdum 
that officially established a lot of restrictions on the Jews. Um, they had to live in a sp specific uh, area of town in which they would be locked in overnight. Those were the original ghettos. Uh, Jews had to wear a distinctive sign on their clothing so that everyone could identify them at a distance as being Jews, both the men and the women. They were forbidden from ever appearing in public without that distinctive sign. A contact between Jews and Christians was forbidden. Uh, their professions were severely limited, limited to lending money and selling secondhand items. And um, they were forbidden from eating, playing, fraternizing, or hiring Christians. And uh, they, anyway, they couldn't trade in, in essential goods, so forth and so on and so on and so on. I don't really want to get into that. But there were a lot of restrictions. Those restrictions were everywhere in Europe, with the exception of Poland, until after the Enlightenment, until after the French Revolution. Um, so with the French Revolution, and after the French Revolution came a lot of other uh, revolutions, um, you know, in, in, in uh, other countries, Germany and, and Italy, the Risorgimento and so forth. And basically the entire Catholic monarchical model collapsed over those the following hundred years, say from you know, 1780 to 1880. With that, the Jews were emancipated. So for the first time, they could mingle in Christian society. They could mingle in the main society. They could go to universities. They could become professionals and professors. They could have normal jobs. They could live in normal neighborhoods. They could socialize with Christians and so forth. And many of them jumped at the chance. For many of them, this was a dream come true, and they wanted nothing more than to fit in. So I'm painting these two streams, but basically these two streams flow together. The philosophical stream coming from the Enlightenment that said, you know, that basically revealed truth isn't real truth. The only real truth is what the senses can verify and the scientific method can verify. And on top of that, was the ability for the first time for the Jews to enter mainstream life. And those two flowed together into a redefinition of Judaism to make it possible for Jews to enter mainstream life. So that was really kind of why I went through that um, little, bit of, uh, little bit of history. Let me see if I can find some uh, relevant notes. Uh, just about the emancipation, uh, the... The, the Jews had civil rights in Poland from the 13th century. There's a strange history to that, but that's the only place, uh, only place in Europe. And from the 13th century until 1791, they had no civil rights anywhere else in Europe. Um, in 1791, they had civil rights uh, for the first time following the French Revolution in France. Then in 1830, they got civil rights in Belgium. In other words, they, they were allowed to be full citizens. In, 19, in 1834 in the Netherlands, between 1848 and 1871 in the various German states and so forth. Uh, they actually never got civil rights in the Papal States until the Papal States were um, dissolved, disbanded. I believe that was 1871 that Pope Pius IX lost sovereignty over the Papal States in the face of the Risorgimento, the, the popular, masonically um, sponsored revolution against the church in Italy. Now, I will back up a little bit. Um, 
because I'm not going to whitewash either side in here. The Jews, the Jewish population in Europe was generally foursquare in favor of these revolutionary movements. They were, they threw their support behind the French Revolution. They threw their support behind the revolutions in Germany. They threw their support behind the Risorgimento, uh, the uprising of Italian nationalism that resulted in the Papal States being dissolved. They didn't do this because they were wicked, evil people. They did this because that's where their freedom lay. Because when, as long as Europe was under the old system, they had no freedoms. And as soon as these revolutions succeeded, they had the full freedoms. So there was an alliance, you could say an alliance of convenience, between the Masonic forces behind these revolutions, who were fighting these revolutions or sponsoring these revolutions, as part of a multi-century campaign to conquer the Catholic Church. And uh, there was this kind of alliance of convenience between the Masons and the Jews because they were both on the same side in these revolutions, not because they were on the same side for the same reasons, not because they had the same motivations, but because... um, of very separate motivations, the Masons it being anti-Catholicism and the Jews it being their emancipation. Um, Anyway, but nonetheless, it is true that uh, the the French, excuse me, the the Jewish resources were on the revolutionary side in these revolutionaries, revolutions, excuse me. Okay, so what happened to Judaism then? So basically... Uh, Until then, Judaism was basically the kind of Judaism that you saw throughout the Middle Ages, and the closest model of that that we see today is Hasidism, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, that they speak their own language, Yiddish, they wear weird clothing, they uh, dress strangely, um, they have strange... They look strange in the sense that men are forbidden from shaving their beards, so they have long beards. Some groups consider it forbidden to cut the hair on the corners of their heads, so they have those long ear curls. They wear fringes in their garments. They have to stay very separate because they're, they eat food that has to be kosher, which means it has to be prepared by people who know how to prepare kosher food in facilities that prepare kosher foods, which means they can't basically can't mingle very much and so forth. So if you're familiar with those Hasidic communities, that was basically Judaism until the emancipation and the enlightenment and the emergence of these post-enlightenment forms of Judaism. So the uh, first one, it really started in Germany. It really started in the early 1800s. And the first major movement was called Reform Judaism. It was a reform of Judaism. It was started by a Rabbi Abraham Geiger explicitly to make Judaism, quote, compliant with modern times, fitting in with modern times. We don't want to be old-fashioned. We don't want to be different. We don't want to appear superstitious. We don't want to smell different from other people. We don't want to have to stay separate from other people because of the the rules of Kashrut and, and so forth. Um, anyway, so he became the chief rabbi in a major city in in uh, 
Actually, at the time it was Germany, Breslau. I have a feeling it's actually Poland now. Anyway, it's, incidentally, I believe it's the city where Edelstein was from. But anyway, he became the chief rabbi there in 1840, and he came up with a system to modernize Judaism by replacing the traditional Hebrew liturgy with the vernacular in order to more closely resemble Protestant services, actually to make the synagogues more closely resemble Protestant synagogues, because as I said, the Jews wanted to fit in, they didn't want to seem so different, um, to allow the individual to decide for him or herself what laws to follow. So all of a sudden, everything was, it was cafeteria Judaism, I think you'd call it, everything was pick and choose. And some people could choose to not eat pork. Some people could choose to eat pork. Some people could choose to keep kosher, keep the Sabbath strictly. Other people could choose not to and so forth. It really was cafeteria Judaism. And um, perhaps even more theologically dangerously to apply modern, quote, higher criticism, close quote, to the understanding of scripture. In other words, all of a sudden, sacred scripture didn't become the revealed or even inspired word of God. It became a kind of tradition and myth handed down within the ethnic group. And anything goes. It could all just be folk tales. It could all be, you know, divinely revealed truth. It could be a mishmash of the two. It could be an incorporation of Babylonian paganism and and uh, Egyptian idol worship and all kinds of different streams from around the Middle East that somehow got got adopted and and massaged into Judaism. Basically, anything goes, and all of a sudden there was no real authority behind Scripture. And um, something we see that has even increased since then, is the tendency to replace Jewish emphasis on ritual observance and worship. Because remember, God is the point of everything. And he certainly should be the point of religions, which means ritual observance and worship. But to replace ritual observance and worship with social justice, right? Everything is the measure of man. Man, excuse me, man is the measure of everything. There was a very uh, notorious Masonic book that uh, it was actually very secret. It, it circulated in the 1930s. I could do a whole show on that book. But in any case, it was called The City of God and the City of Man. And the point was to replace the city of God, which St. Augustine talks about, with the city of man. The rebuilt heavenly Jerusalem, built by noble men for life on earth, basically, because there is no supernatural life. There is no life after death. There is no God. There's nothing transcendent in the world. But it was to um, build a perfected society here among us. I will point out, since I've been doing a lot of bashing of Judaism in this show, that it is rather horrifying to see that reflected to the extent it is in the prayers of intercession very often at Mass, in the behavior sometimes of the church hierarchy, in what in where its priorities are, you know, in, in, in balancing, weighing between social justice and improving people's lot in their life on earth versus ensuring that they get to heaven. You know, one could argue that the pendulum has swung pretty far in the direction of the city of man. 
even in the Catholic Church. But anyway, back to Judaism. And by the way, I've been talking a mile a minute. I'm almost halfway through our time for the show. This is a live call-in program, believe it or not. I haven't even mentioned the, um, the phone number here. But the phone number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And I will uh, take a short break in, in two or three minutes as soon as I uh, finish the little module that I'm on. And uh, during that break, I'll play a little Hasidic music, wash the taste of Reformed Judaism out of my, our mouths, so to speak, if you excuse me for saying that. And, um, and uh, when I come back from the break, I will immediately look at the call board. And if anyone's called in, I'll, I'll move to the calls, take the calls. But anyway, uh, I have just been talking about Reformed Judaism. I've been talking about where it came from, what its agenda is, and so forth, when it arose, which was around the 1840s. And it is probably, in one form or another, the dominant form of Judaism that one finds in the United States today. There's been this polarization, and you tend to find either extremely observant Jews, like the Hasidic Jews, also Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, and so forth. And then you find, even though they have different names, essentially Reform Judaism. So I would say that uh, Reform Judaism, in its overt form and in its surreptitious form, uh, constitutes about 60%, or rather is followed by about 60% of the Jews in the United States today. And with that, let's go to the little musical break, which I've uh, prepared here on my end. And when we come back, I'll see if there are any calls. And I will continue with post-Enlightenment Judaism. Thank you. 
Well, I wanted to play something a little sad because the topic is kind of sad, but I kind of apologize. I was maybe a little sadder than, than I was prepared for. Uh, that music came out of Hungary about uh, 1930 for the Holocaust. It's uh, a genre of music known as klezmer music, which was the kind of indigenous folk music of the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe at the time. Now I see that uh, it looks like I don't have any callers, so I will go back to talking about what I was talking about, which was these uh, post-Enlightenment uh, changes to Judaism. So, um, yes, I'm just trying to think of how I can uh, best monitor calls. But anyway, I'll just keep an eye, uh, half an eye out on the on the call board, I guess, is the best way. That should be what, enough to, to catch it, if any of you call in. 866-333-6279. So, anyway, that, paint, that picture I painted of Reformed Judaism basically is what has taken over Judaism in, in much of the world. Now, because it was so extreme... Uh, in other words, the initial thrust of Reformed Judaism was to remove all Hebrew from the liturgy and to basically remove all restrictions on, for instance, the food that Jews ate. There was a rather scandalous, uh, what was it called, the Philadelphia platform, I think it was, a meeting of Reformed Jewry in Philadelphia in around the 1840s. And they served um, shrimp and pork at this uh, conference. So that that's a kind of an icon to the Jewish world of kind of like just how far gone this, this movement became. And so there was a kind of reaction against it, which was uh, an attempt to conserve more aspects of traditional Judaism while still adapting to modern times. And because it was... It was uh, it originated in order to conserve more of traditional Judaism. It's known as conservative Judaism, even though it's not terribly conservative. Um, uh, I, I see I, I have a question, so I'm happy to answer it. Are the current goals of the Masonic Lodges still to destroy the Catholic Church? The answer is uh, yes, although one of the problems with the way the devil works is that he doesn't you know, he doesn't wear his agenda on his sleeve. So most Masons, I would say, if you just look around, you know, ni at least 98% of Masons have no idea of what the real purpose of the Masonic lodges are. And they just think it's a way, you know, it's good for your business, you make connections, you get favorable treatment from other Masons and so forth. And they're unaware of the fact that its real purpose is to uh, destroy the Catholic Church. Uh, you have to be pretty high level before that is revealed to you. However, if I'm not mistaken, Pope Benedict XVI repeated not too long ago, obviously he hasn't been Pope for a while, but it was while he was Pope, repeated the interdiction that is forbidden for any Catholic, I believe, to be a Mason. And over the past 150 years, there have been many such edicts that came from the Catholic Church, 
making it clear that you cannot both be Catholic and a Mason because, because Masonry is at its heart, in its fundamental purpose, opposed to the Catholic Church. Um, I'm not an authority on this, so I don't want to, I guess I'd better backpedal from there, or, you know, just kind of like stop there. I know that there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a flirtation with allowing Catholics to become Masons, which predated, I believe, Pope Benedict's repeating of the prohibition. And I think it's why he repeated the prohibition was precisely because there was so much confusion in the Catholic world. And there was a kind of attitude that, oh, no, 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 that's ancient history. Masons aren't like that anymore. So then Pope Benedict had to come back and say, well, actually, the prohibition still stands. Anyway, okay, back to problems with, with, with Judaism, so to speak. Um, so anyway, you have conservative Judaism, which tried to mix uh, more of a flavor of little bits of traditional Judaism in with this um, compromise with the modern world. And I actually grew up within conservative Judaism. And the only, well, I don't, I don't want to say the only real difference. Anyway, but conservative Judaism, there is Hebrew in the liturgy. There's a mix of Hebrew and English in the liturgy. There is a more of a sense of taboo about violating the traditional Jewish laws and so forth. But in the last 30 or 40 years, conservative Judaism has been undermined to the point where I will argue that it actually uh, theologically is the same as Reformed Judaism. Uh, I will actually go into that right now. It's actually theologically the same as Reformed Judaism. It's just clothed in more traditional behavior. And that's probably going to be the last topic that I can get to today. But this is actually what I think is the, the worst thing that happened to Judaism in the last hundred years is something called Reconstructionism. Now, Reconstructionism was uh, begun by a rabbi named Mordecai Kaplan. He wrote his magnum opus, if I'm not mistaken, his, his Bible of Reconstructionist Judaism. I believe it was published in 1930. I don't have notes for this, so I'm flying by the seat of my pants. But anyway, he was a rabbi in New York City who essentially, I don't know whether to say he became atheist or agnostic. I think one would have to say he became uh, agnostic. He um, no longer wanted to assert the existence of God. He no want, longer wanted to assert any divine revelation behind Judaism but he wanted to preserve Judaism as this wonderful civilizing force. So the book he wrote is called Judaism as Civilization. And it basically, that's what it's selling. It's selling the idea that Judaism was a wonderful civilizing force for world civilization. You know, it brought the Ten Commandments to mankind. It brought, you know, uh, monotheism to mankind instead of the paganism it brought the you know reverence of worship and so forth to mankind and where would civilization be without judaism and remember in his thinking christianity is an offshoot of judaism so without judaism there would be no christianity we know that's true but that's for a different reason that's because 
because uh, Jesus truly was the Jewish Messiah. But anyway, so he's seeing, you know, everything that Christianity has brought to the world came through Judaism in his eyes. And so basically, the world would be a much, much, much worse place without Judaism. And Judaism still is this wonderful civilizing force for our the world. And therefore, it's very important that we preserve Judaism, even though we don't know whether God exists or not, and we don't know whether Judaism is entirely man-made or not. I think that's a pretty horrifying theology. But in any case, uh, that is the underlying theology behind Reconstructionist Judaism. And the thing, though, is that, he, you know, he was a great intellectual, and it's veiled. It's kind of hidden. So most people, most Jews, if you ask them what Reconstructionism is, Reconstructionist Judaism is, they don't know what I just told you. They'll say, oh, it's like conservative Judaism. Oh, or, oh, it's like Reformed Judaism. They don't actually know the underlying theology. My best friend in high school became a Reconstructionist rabbi. And um, a few years after he became a rabbi, I was at Harvard Business School at the time, or I had just finished Harvard Business School at the time. He came to spend a week with me. He was a very good friend. And I, I hammered him for two days before I could get him to admit that he didn't believe in God or that Reconstructionism didn't believe in God. He went through the Reconstructionist Seminary. He was ordained as a Reconstructionist rabbi. And for two days, he, he danced and weaved and ducked and dodged, trying to avoid answering whether or not Reconstructionism believes in God. At the end of two days, I managed to pin him down so that he had to admit it. So that's, that's the problem that we face with it. And just to become absolutely, totally horrifying, I'm going to end the show with this, probably, to become totally horrifying, when, when rabbis graduate from the Reconstructionist Seminary, the Reconstructionist Seminary in the United States puts out more rabbis a year than any other seminary. Those rabbis, when they get ordained, do they go into Reconstructionist congregations? No. By and large, they go into conservative congregations. The conservative congregations probably are not even aware that their rabbi studiously is avoiding addressing the issue of whether God exists. And uh, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I can't say they don't believe in God, but they certainly don't assert that God exists. And their underlying theology is we have to do what we do, whether or not God exists. And they're going into con uh, conservative congregations and they're teaching, you know, they're, they're hiring the Hebrew school teachers to teach the Jewish CCD classes and everything. Um, just imagine the corrupting effect this has on Jewish theology. Ah, okay. Now, here is the kicker. The um, dean and president of the Reconstructionist Seminary for over 10 years was a Rabbi Arthur Green, Artie Green. And huh, he... Um, okay, so he was leading this seminary for over 10 years. They founded, Hebrew College, I believe, founded a new 
theological seminary, interdenominational within Judaism, just for him. So now he's the head of his own new seminary, but for over 10 years he was the head of the Reconstructionist Seminary. And um, does he believe in God or doesn't he believe in God? I will let you try to figure that out uh, because I'm going to play just a 90-second clip from him giving a talk to his fans. So one of the big problems here is that these people don't tell the truth. They, they don't come out and tell their congregations what they really believe. They keep that, it's almost like Gnosticism, you know, for the elite, um, you know, for, for people who are on the inside. People on the outside, they're pretending this is Judaism. But having said all that, uh, take a listen to Rabbi Arthur Green, the president of, let me look up the dates, the president of the... Um, of the uh, Reconstructionist Seminary from from uh, uh, 1984 until uh, 1993, and then he was given his own seminary. So listen to him explain to the initiates what God is. God is real. It's the center of life. This use of the word God has very little to do with the way most people understand the term, and sometimes you almost feel it should be a different word. But the language of God, of course, is so much a part of our Western tradition especially that we live with it and we interpret it. The relationship between God and the world is not that of creator and creature, where the creator is out there and the creature is over here. The relationship between God and the world is that between deep structure and surface appearance. Scratch the surface and you'll begin to penetrate the deep structure. You'll begin to see the inner life, the inner life which is the life of God that animates things and lives within all of reality. Judaism is a toolbox. It's a toolbox. It's a set of tools given to us to uncover that reality. The Jews of past generations, the ultra-Orthodox today will tell you it's God's toolbox. God gave us that toolbox in order to do the work. Some of us may say it's the Jewish people's toolbox. It's the toolbox we inherited from tradition. I don't know who made the tools. It doesn't make any difference if they work. Well, there you have it. I hope your blood is running cold right now, so to speak. That is what has... I don't want to say it's taken over Judaism, but that is that was a recording of Rabbi Arthur Green, who, as I said, was the dean and then president of the seminary, Jewish seminary in the United States that was turning out more rabbis every year than any other seminary. Uh, and he was reflecting his own version of Reconstructionist theology in there. Actually, the worst, I don't even worse, he calls it neo-Hasidism. I mean, because you could tell there's this like mystical gloss on it. And since I have a couple of minutes, and, and if any of you are, um, you know, have a philosophical bent, you might recognize that the theology that he was espousing there was essentially pantheism and was uh, a direct outgrowth of uh, Spinoza's pantheism. Uh, Spinoza, Bruch Spinoza, was a Jewish apostate, so to speak, of the 17th century. So he predates the Enlightenment by maybe about 30 or 40 years. 
but he definitely laid the groundwork for the Enlightenment. Uh, he was a very intelligent, brilliant, in fact, uh, Jewish, you could say theologian, certainly Kabbalist, and he espoused what ended up being this very fairly pure form of pantheism. So I'll just spend about two or three minutes at the end of the show talking about that. So here's a standard definition of pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that reality is identical with divinity, or that all things compose an all-encompassing, imminent God. Pantheist belief does not recognize a distinct personal God, anthropomorphic or otherwise. Pantheism was popularized in Western culture as a theology and philosophy based on the work of the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Um, the um, uh, Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go. It's kind of uh, turning my stomach. But anyway, you see, I mean, let me just end the show with this, which is, okay, put all that on the left-hand side, a big, a big pile of, of dross, of garbage that I have been relating throughout this show. Okay, put that on one side, and on the other side, let's remember Jesus, okay? Let's remember who God is. Really, Jesus. God is not only not this impersonal, deep structure behind the universe. God is a person who loves us so much that he chose to suffer more than anybody else and to be crucified and die so that he could be with us for all eternity in heaven. He, God became man so that we, so that we could see God and understand God, because of course, as long as God is just the creator of all that is, who always was and always will be and has no beginning and has no end, it's awfully hard to establish a personal relationship with him. So God became man so that we could love him so that we could know that we are loved by him, so that we could have a personal relationship with him, so that we could speak to him, so that he could speak to us. This is, the, this is like so totally the opposite of all of this post-enlightenment garbage. And we all live in the world, right? We all live in the culture, right? And you turn on the TV, you turn on the car radio. Please remember What's the truth and what isn't the truth? We are living in this ocean, this post-enlightenment or post-endarkenment ocean of logical positivism, of science is the only truth, of there is no revealed religion, of um, God is the deep structure of the universe. It's not a person. You know, scratch the surface what did he say in there? Scratch the surface and underneath you'll find God. The relationship, I think he said in that quote, the relationship between God and creation isn't that of creator and creation. It's the, it is that of surface appearance and deep structure. Come on, guys. Put the picture. This is June, right? The month dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus. You know, I, 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 don't, I can't show you a picture because, of course, this is radio, but put the picture of the sacred heart of Jesus before your mind's eye, of Jesus looking at us with that yearning love that is just 
seeking us out and is just wants us to love him and wants to help us. And his heart, you know, his chest open to show us his heart that's wounded for love of us and inviting us into his heart. That is what God is, okay? Not all of this dreck. Dreck is Yiddish for garbage, okay? So anyway, you know, I do these shows in large part, first of all, to help. I mean, I the best thing that ever happened to me, of course, was entering the Catholic Church and finding the true God and everything. And I do want to kind of uh, share that enthusiasm, uh, including with cradle Catholics. But I also want to shed a bright light on the tragedy of Judaism. There's a lot of very beautiful things in Judaism, but it's fundamentally tragic because Judaism was true. The Jewish Messiah came. He died on the cross for everybody, including the Jews. He wants them. He wept over their failure to follow him, right? Before the crucifixion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my uh, to me like a mother hen gathered her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You know, he wept. The place is still called Dominus Fleva. The Lord wept. He wept over the failure of the Jews to follow him. Look at the morass they're in now. They brought Jesus to the rest of the world. Please, 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 let's return the favor. Let's put a little energy into praying for the conversion of the Jews. It's It's only simple justice. They brought Jesus to the rest of us. It's time to help them find Jesus themselves. And also we know from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674 says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. Jesus is just waiting to come again, the second coming, and he can't come until there's a widespread conversion of the Jews. And the conversion will only come about through the prayers of good, faithful Catholics like you guys. So anyway, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, me, Roy Shoman. Join us again next week, same place, same time. Bye for now.